situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hello, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Headlines. It is October 22nd. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me from across the world are Joe and Neil. Hi there. Hi, everyone. And today, for the past week, um, it hasn't really been a big news week. For the most part, we've just been seeing, um, you know, developments of developing stories. Um, Of course, in the weeks before we had the Las Vegas shooting, We may get into a little bit of that today, but we've covered it the past two weeks. And uh, if you check out SOT.net, you'll see that uh, both Joe and Neil have new articles up um, discussing and going into even more detail than uh, what basically the topics that we discussed in the last couple of shows. So uh, Joe's article focuses. Go ahead. Yeah, the Las Vegas shooting. Joe focuses on the kind of what happened in the Mandalay Bay and... um, Kind of the scene of the crime, and then Niels goes into the um, the events all over the Las Vegas Strip that happened that night. So there's a lot that went on um, that hasn't been covered in the news, and you can only really find it by looking at the um, social media uh, of the actual eyewitnesses who were there on that day, and um, then by reference to the police scanner audio. Um, so we may get into that, may not. We'll see what happens. Um, as for the news developments that have been going on for the last week, um, we may or may not get to all these stories, but um, some of the things that have been happening, of course, there's still the the kind of fallout and development from the Catalonian independence referendum um, and the Spanish government's response to what's going on there and, of course, the kind of popular response back and forth um, we'll get into some of those details. Then, if, then there's the Kurdistan independence um, referendum and the, the developments from that. So that's still ongoing. And then, of course, things are going on in Syria. Um, Trump basically just announced, you know, the imminent end of of ISIS because of the defeat of ISIS in Raqqa in Syria. At the same time, the Russians and Syrians uh, in the past couple of weeks have taken. The vast majority of the the previously besieged city of Deir Azor in the east of the country and are kind of consolidating the areas all around there along the bank of the Euphrates. Um, and the, the, the Kurds, the SDF, who are supported by the U.S., are kind of um, rushing to take as much land and oil fields uh, to the east of the Euphrates. So it's kind of a rush for territory going on there. Um, Israel, as usual, bombing Syrian army. And um, then, of course, we've got what's going on in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein. That's still a story. Um, you know, she's going on. So, we, uh, like I said, we may or may not get to all those topics, but um, we'll try. Maybe, and of course, Russiagate continues. So, uh, where do we want to start? How about... Um, Unless you guys have any preference, maybe we can talk about something we actually haven't talked about on the show yet. Um, just a little bit on Harvey Weinstein. What do you think? Go ahead. 
All right. So unless you've been uh, living under a rock and haven't heard the news, um, Harvey Weinstein, who is kind of one of the giants of Hollywood, um, uh, he and his brother started the Weinstein Company, and they have been kind of intimately involved with some of the biggest kind of blockbuster hits and, um, you know, Hollywood successes over the past 20, 30 years. Um, include everything from like in kind of semi-independent risque stuff like Pulp Fiction to major popular blockbusters like The King's Speech in more recent years. And um, just a couple weeks ago, both the um, I th- what was the original paper? I think it was New York Times, mm-hmm. and then also the the New Yorker both put out um, pretty substantial exposés on Harvey Weinstein's um, past and the uh, the women that he has either sexually uh, harassed or assaulted, with allegations going as far as uh, um, three well three to five. Originally, three women came forward saying he actually raped them. And that number has come up to five since then, I guess. So this story has been kind of, um, well, the, the the people that wrote the two exposés, they've been um, researching this and, um, you know, investigating it for, I, th- I think they've said in about the last year or so, 10 months. And um, I think what happened is that the New York Times guys got got word that the New York, the New the, the guy that was doing the New Yorker story was doing one. So they kind of scooped him on that. Um, and the guy that did the New Yorker story originally was uh, working for NBC, and it was going to be a um, a TV kind of expose uh, with video interviews and stuff like that. NBC um, axed the the project, said they weren't weren't going to go forward with it. According to them, um, it was because there wasn't enough evidence, basically. Um, but he disputes that. Anyways, he went with it, went to the New Yorker with it, and, or New York, yeah, the New Yorker. And so um, once these two stories came out, it's just been kind of nonstop Weinstein news, um, you know, since then. So um, I guess just some of the details, um, I think it's upwards of 50 women now have come forward saying that uh, Weinstein uh, harassed them or abused them in some way. And of course, this gave, uh, this was kind of, uh, similar to what happened last year with the allegations against Donald Trump, except um, with a few differences. First of all, just being the sheer n- number of women that have come forward and that, can, that continue to come forward. And that um, while Trump managed to kind of um, come through that relatively unscathed, Weinstein's career looks like it's basically over. Um, all these women basically tell the same story of um, like there was a <clears throat> a specific kind of routine that that Weinstein kind of developed with the people that worked with him. So whether it was to you know called in for you know a casting job or just you know a job in the company or internship or whatever, um, if there was a meeting set up with with Harvey Weinstein, they he would set it up so that uh, usually a woman assistant would bring the 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 young woman into the office or the hotel room. As kind of um, well, the the women themselves have described this role as like the honeypot. So basically, someone to make you feel comfortable and to get you into the room. But then the agreement with Weinstein is okay. Well, once you get the girl in the room, then you leave and you leave them alone. And then he would basically proposition them and um, or force himself in some way on the woman. And basically, the the underlying kind of dynamic being well, if you want your job, then this is the way it's going to be. 
and um, I can ruin your career if you don't go along with it. <clears throat> and of course, that's why a lot of um, these women ended up um, in the situation and um, and doing going through whatever you know Weinstein wanted them to. So it has also been a somewhat political scandal because Weinstein is and has been a major Democratic donor and fundraiser. So not only has he uh, himself personally donated um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, various, you know, high-level Democratic um, politicians. Um, he's also had fundraisers raising millions of dollars for for these people, and that includes, you know, everyone from Hillary, Hillary Clinton to Chuck Schumer to, um, you know, all the big kind of Democrat names. So the one of the first responses was for all these people to kind of... Um, you know, when there's a big scandal like this, it's all about uh, image. So, um, and <clears throat> and guilt by association, and kind of just being, uh, you know, tied to someone of a somewhat dubious or very dubious character. So, a lot of these people are pledging to give back the the money they donated, or to donate it to a different cause. And um, Weinstein, even I think he donated five hundred thousand or two hundred and fifty thousand, maybe it was five hundred to the Clinton Foundation. And Hillary Clinton kind of um, messed up her own face-saving um, strategy by basically saying she won't give the money back when uh, she could have easily just said, um, "Better if I have the money than a you know a dirty rapist," um, you know, has it. But she didn't go that route, probably because, of course, her husband is no different. Um, so there's a political angle to this as well. But one of one of the, I guess. For me, the main thing is that, like a lot of these articles have said, <clears throat> is that it's just the tip of the iceberg, and there's nothing really that out of the ordinary about Harvey Weinstein in this business, you know, the Hollywood business. And so it is a, a widespread spread problem, and he is not the only one. And so, of course, um, a lot of women have been com- coming forward and, you know, naming other you know, big names in the business, whether it's film directors or producers or, you know, agents of that s- or things of that sort. I have a and question, then also, Harrison. yeah, go ahead. What was the story that broke the story? Is he being charged? Is someone suing? Is someone just talk to the press? <clears throat> well, I I believe the the story as it just initially was there were no charges or anything. It was just a a kind of um, you know these journalists had found enough women that were willing to tell their story on the record and then, um, you know, more who were willing to tell it off the record that it was just basically, um, you know, an, uh, an information dump, like, you know, almost like a, it was just an expose. However, mm-hmm. what, how that developed was that almost immediately after, um, because a lot of these women, um, were on the record and were from various cities, um, or this occurred in various cities like New York and London. Um, then the, it was, I believe it was only after the, the stories um, were published that the police in these cities basically opened up investigations. So, so there are currently investigations going on in London and New York. And the, the, um, what the, what they're saying is that, um, you know, if they, that basically he could be charged and, and, you know, potentially prosecuted for, for some of these um, allegations. And, if found guilty, you know, could spend up to 25 years or more in prison, depending on, um, you know, which cases go forward and, um, you know, um, what he's actually charged for. Because 
um, in, I believe it's in New York, where some of these um, events allegedly took place, there's no statute of limitations for rape, for example. And there, like I said, there are five women, I think three have, have come forward um, with their names and two, I believe two have done so anonymously. Um, so, so that's, you know, that could potentially put uh, Weinstein in jail, but um, that is, so that's not how the story started though. But there is a whole history before that. Um, again, part of this expose that Weinstein um, has, and it's basically in his contract for work with his company that, um, that if, if, well, in his, in his contract, it basically says if any woman like accuses him of, of any kind of impropriety, then if, if he settles with this woman, like, um, outside of the courts or, you know, with, you know, not going to trial or anything, but if he p- basically pays her off, then, um, then we- the Weinstein company would get like, uh, you know, reimbursement for, you know, however much they might have to pay out to, to this woman. And this has happened numerous times, apparently. So a lot of the women that are speaking off the record are doing so because they have had, they've gone through this process with Weinstein and or his company and have been paid off by him. And um, one of the actresses that has come forward, um, not anonymously, is Rose McGowan. And she um, she was, um, you know, she became famous in the, like the mid-90s and in, in a couple Weinstein films. And she she is one of the the women saying that he actually did rape her, and according to her, she for, for either I think it's been for like a a period of of years where um she has been basically in talks with, like with his lawyers and they were trying to get her to they were, uh, they were trying to pay her um, to basically shut up and she was kind of stringing them along. Um, it's hard to get from her Facebook posts. It's hard to get, um, you know, a totally, uh, accurate idea of what was going on. But she says that, um, basically she did, she didn't want to, to do that because, um, basically she, she kind of see that as a, a sellout. She wanted to go public and not to, you know, take the hush money. So, but, but she basically, and her lawyers, um, in concert with his lawyers, we're we're talking about a figure of like first one million, and then she wanted them, them to go up to six million um, before she said, "No, I'm not. You know, I'm not taking your money." So they were willing to pay um, at least one million, potentially up to six million, for her to to not talk about it. But um, she decided to actually talk about it and and go public, um, like a lot of these women. But in the so in the past, Harvey Weinstein has you know settled, um, you know with uh, with. Who knows how many women? Um, that really hasn't been uncovered. Um, but you know, paid a ton of money to, to to stop this. And these allegations go back all the way to the '80s, like when uh, Weinstein was working on his first film. Um, one of the one of the um, women that worked for him as an intern, I believe, um, she said that he tried the same thing on her when she when like he was working on his first film. You know, he was working in his hotel room, and she came up to to give him a bunch of checks that he had to sign. And he did the whole thing. Like, you know, he comes to the door, uh, opens the door and he's wearing just his bathrobe. And then he takes the bathrobe off and he's totally naked. And he says, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm really sore. I could use a massage. Hmm. And, uh, she just, she just says that, uh, she just t- told him, you know, Harvey, you know, to be honest, I think you're disgusting. And he just kind of laughed it off and made a joke about it. And so nothing happened with her, but that's the, the can you, like, if you just imagine you, you try that on, you know, however many women a week 
And, um, you know, not all of them are going to, to have the, you know, the personality or the, <clears throat> um, like this woman did, but, uh, but mm. she came forward and said, you know, so he's been doing this for, for, you know, 30 years plus. And one of the big scandals is that apparently, you know, everybody knew about it. So everybody kind of knew about Harvey Weinstein and you'll, you'll see clips of, um, you know, interviews with actors and actresses and even kind of skits and sketches done on various either awards shows or, um, you know, little comedy shows like maybe not specifically SNL, but shows like Saturday Night Live where they kind of joke about this, like, oh, you know, don't go, don't go alone into Harvey Weinstein's room. And, and so a, a lot of people are coming forward saying, yeah, everyone knew this was common knowledge. It's just that no one said anything. And of course it was because Holly, Harvey Weinstein is one of the biggest people in Hollywood. And like, uh, um, like these articles, one of these articles, one of these exposés quoted, um, or maybe it came out after these two, but there was a, a little kind of um, statistical kind of analysis that I think something like Slate or Vox or someone did like a couple of years ago on Oscar award acceptance speeches. And Harvey Weinstein was like, you know, second or third, um, second or third place for the number of people who had, who had personally thanked him in their um, acceptance speech and even above God. <laughs> so, and of course, you know, almost everyone thanks God when they get an mm -hmm. Oscar. Um, so this has been going on for years. Everybody knew about it. And it's only, you know, it's only now that uh, some of these women are coming forward publicly that there's any kind of scandal about it. So now, of course, there's the, the scramble to to cover, you know, to cover your ass for a lot of these people, you know, saying that they didn't know anything about it or, or, you know, it comes as such a shock to them mm. when really, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And the same thing with a lot of the politicians, the, um, just the other day, one of, um, uh, I believe it was someone who worked for Weinstein, um, was interviewed and they said that they personally had warned all kinds of top level, like Democrats who were working with him, like saying, Oh, you know, basically saying, you know, Weinstein's a shady guy, you know, what kind of stuff he does. And he says that the politicians just didn't care. They're like, right. yeah, whatever. Far for the course. Did you, uh, yeah. do you know, do you know when this started? Uh, cause for some reason I have in my mind that, that the first story about Weinstein came out in the news, uh, towards the end of September. Does that make any sense to you? That, that could be, yeah, it's been a while. Um, it's been a while, yeah. it's certainly, be, it's certainly yeah. been a very good distraction from the whole Vegas business, you know? I'm not saying it was yeah. necessarily planned that way, but it's very coincidental that you had this stuff basically, and I mean, has been dominating the news. And it, it, it to a certain extent, it, it sounds like a big nothing burger. Of course, it, uh, it's a big, real vegan burger uh, mm -hmm. in a certain sense for the social justice types and stuff. But obviously, this kind of thing uh, goes on all the time in Hollywood and has done for probably decades and decades. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. a great opportunity for, for all sorts of people who have no virtue to do a bunch of virtue signaling to say, yeah, mm -hmm. it's terrible about Harvey Weinstein. I, I sh and people who knew about it coming out and kind of mea culpa. I knew about it and I should have said something at the time, but now I'm ready to say, ready to say, you know, yes, it was bad and blah, blah. There's all these people just basically getting on the bandwagon and using it to, to, to virtue signal, signal. And, um, the, the thing about it is, is that it's, uh, it's pretty much par for the course, you know, and it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, it's. I would say the truth behind it is that sure, Harvey Weinstein's a lech, uh, but there's probably thousands of them in Hollywood, or at least hundreds mm -hmm. of producers who are all probably very similar, uh, mm -hmm. and who all use their positions to to get favors. 
kind of uh, or try to get sexual yeah. favors. I think for the vast majority of them, including Harvey Weinstein, there's probably no case where he uh, forced uh, himself on someone or actually raped someone. Because, and of course, the caveat to that is it's very hard to tell. There are women who have come out and said that he, that he raped them. But um, we know that that's very problematic these days when there's a lot of stories coming out of um, uh, w- women who, who, after the fact, basically claim rape, you know. So it's very murky in the sense of, and especially in, in the in the entertainment and the Hollywood scene where you have women who uh, see that as part of the, as something that's required in a certain sense. Um, some of them do, probably most of them don't, but let's say some of them do and are willing to kind of sleep their way to the top or try to sleep their way to the top. Uh, so mm-hmm. in that sense, in that context, you can't blame Harvey Weinstein or anyone, you know, accepting the world that we live in. Uh, you can't blame them or you can't say it's unusual that someone in his position would proposition women in the understanding that you're probably going to uh, have a few successes because the women who, who want to um, improve their careers are willing to uh, give sexual favours for uh, a better job or a p- place in a movie. That's, that's not to say that it's, that it's good or ideal or moral, but it's the point is that it's normal and it's a kind of a big nothing burger in the sense of it's completely par for the course. It's been going on for decades. So why are they making a big deal about it now? Well, it's part of the whole, in the past few years, the whole basic, uh, the, 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 this liberal uh, kind of... Spasms of righteousness. Yeah, and social justice across the board, women's rights, minorities' rights, everything. Of course, it fits perfectly into that and it would be given a lot of legs because of that and, and by the media that seems to be playing into it, you know? So um, it just seems to be part of part of that mania that's going on, you know? And that's not to say that that kind of stuff that goes on in Hollywood is good or right or should be should be acceptable. But it, it, the point is that it's been, that's been the way of the world for a long time. Why freak out about it now and make it make out like it's this is a unique kind of horrific, terrible thing that this one person did? No, I mean, you know, you know of course, you know, if you want to solve the problem, you have to upend the, all of society, basically. And, of course, that's what the leftists want to do. They want to tear it all down because it's all rotten, right? Um, yeah. I just thought it was interesting mm-hmm. that it was all over the media during the yeah. Vegas, Vegas stuff. Mm-hmm. Saying that yeah, and a, it's hard. A Hollywood, saying that a Hollywood mogul makes inappropriate advances on women is a bit like saying prostitution takes place in Las Vegas. You think? It's a bit like saying the Pope goes to Mass on a Sunday. You know, there's a reason why since ancient Rome, the term actress is very closely associated with being a prostitute. Which isn't to flip it around here and to blame the women in this case. I don't care who's to blame. It's the culture. It's the environment they're in. I mean, it's like, yeah, the sky is blue. Yeah, it is. And it, the, the real dirt on Hollywood, of course, which they won't touch with a 10-foot pole, is all the actors, largely male, actually, who've come forward in the last decade or so. Um, with a lot of details, some of whom have ended up dead under some dodgy circumstances, some of whom brought cases that somehow got buried or not reported on. We don't know how they ended up about widespread pedophilia in Hollywood, that they come mm-hmm. in as child actors and actresses and they're right. raped six ways from Sunday. Uh, for all the careers, it never really stops. It's a systematic abuse that takes place in that environment. And it's disgusting and it goes on and everyone knows it, but yeah, everyone pretends they don't see it. I mean, that's that shows you how contrived this this mm. this is celebrity gossip. And it, the fact that it is national news in a country that is undergoing chronic 
political and economic upheaval right now is just very telling about it's, it fits the MO. I mean, quite literally, people joke, you know, oh, that's so Hollywood when the U.S. government does something ridiculous, right? They've literally made a Hollywood story to distract people from the serious crisis the country's in. And that's the end of it, really. One of the interesting things is, has been that um, be, because of this and some of the stories that have come out, um, you know, in response to the Weinstein thing is that there has been, I've, well, I've noticed there's been at least a little more focus on the pedophilia angle. So the, the Corey Feldman story, um, mm. you know, has been going around and and being brought up again. And some some people, um, you know, some actresses and more actors have come forward saying that they were abused as children. And um, a couple of years ago, there was a documentary that came out called An Open Secret on the, the kind of Hollywood pedophilia problem. And the filmmakers have just, just uh, like in response to this kind of like renewed interest, they've made it available for free on Vimeo. Um, so I watched it last night because I, you know, I saw an article about it. Um, and I'd recommend watching it, you know, just search on Vimeo, an open secret. And it's an hour and a half documentary. And it gets into, it's kind of like a, a microcosm. So it focuses on like a small group of like five or six people. Um, you know, in the industry and then all of the kind of young um, male actors that got caught up in this web. And so it's not, uh, well, and I, there's actually, there's a tangential kind of connection to Corey Feldman because um, um, what's the name of the, of the young actor that uh, committed suicide that was, uh, you know, a friend of his, was Ooh. it another Corey, Corey Haim or something like that? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Cause Corey Feldman had said that he kind of, um, took responsibility because he said that he was the guy that introduced him to the agent that uh, that the, this other young man um, was abused by as a child. And this guy, his name was Marty Weiss. And Marty Weiss is one of the characters, you know, that's one of the guys that's pretty much profiled in this documentary. And um, just one of the, like, it's hard to know. Um, well, I, I'd guess that it's probably a lot more, or it's probably very widespread in Hollywood, the, the pedophile um, kind of just, you know, infestation. And because, and even if you, you can even take them at their own word, like a lot of the boys say that, um, like the thing that this guy, Marty, Marty Weiss would say to them, or, you know, another guy involved would be, oh, well, you know, everyone does it. It's okay. It's totally normal. Um, this is just what you've got to do in this business. And, and so that's how a lot of the, you know, and it happens when they're just kids, right? And so they get caught up with it. And and then, like like you said, Joe, it, it goes on for years. And um, so this documentary, it, it focuses on um, um, like, you know, six or seven um, young actors and their experience with, with this kind of group of people. And it's... Uh, um, one of the ways that they found them was that there, there were, or kind of connected the dots between this group was that some of the parents and um, just people involved in the inter industry watching out for this kind of thing noticed that on eBay there were like a few sellers on eBay that were selling child photographs, and it was just like headshots, um, um, you know, actors' headshots, but of these like no-name kids, and they were selling for like you know one hundred and fifty dollars, three hundred dollars. So they're like, well, who's who's selling these and who's buying them? And they found out that one of the guy, one of these guys selling them was this guy named Bob Villard, and he was a photographer. And you know he'd often, whenever he'd do a photo shoot with kids, 
Um, he'd usually get the boy, young boys to take their shirts off and he'd shoot them from high angles. And so this guy was selling his photographs and Bob Villard is a, a you know, convicted um, sex offender, uh, registered sex offender now. And his entire like group of friends is, is involved in this sort of thing. And they, in the, in the documentary, they interview this one guy who was, um, he was like the first manager in Hollywood that dealt almost like exclusively with kids. And so they interview this guy and at first you're just kind of like, well, first you're, you're, you get a, a bad feeling about this guy and you're like, well, how, why did this guy even agree to, to, you know, be interviewed for this documentary? Because, you know, it just seems like he's got something to hide. And then by the end you realize that he does. And, um, it's just creepy. Like this guy was, uh, and a lot of these guys, what they'll do is they'll get a whole bunch of child clients. And, um, because, you know, it's a hectic schedule. Like, you know, kids are going to auditions, um, you know, every day or several a week. And it's, it's tough if, if the family doesn't live close by. So a lot of these kids end up like staying in their manager's house. So this guy would have like anywhere, you know, between like three and 10 kids staying with him at his house. And, and, um, that's what a, a lot of these people do. And, and it's just, it, well, it's just typical, you know, if you read anything about pedophiles and the, the grooming process, it's, it's just right out of the, the textbook, basically how they operate. And just as one, one little detail to, that, you know, you'll see if you watch the documentary, they ask this guy um, who was part of the Screen Actors Guild and who was, um, you know, who had these kids, uh, has been working with kids for decades. Uh, I think he's retired now or semi-retired. But they ask him, um, oh, so are you sexually attracted to young children? And he, he says, um, no, not particularly. <laughs> and just that's prob- that for me was like the, one of the most chilling parts giveaway. of the documentary because I know, giveaway. like what kind of response is that? Um, like it's just, it's so obvious. And then they, they catch him on, on, um, on camera, like one of, the, one of the kids, well, ex-kids, you know, he's an adult now, um, calls him up. And they're filming and, you know, has a conversation with him where he reveals, um, you know, some stuff from his past. And anyways, I just I'd recommend watching it because that is the that is the real issue. Like, um, you know, as as immoral or bad and kind of, um, um, you know, nasty as the, the Hollywood is in general with adults. I mean, the the real the really bad stuff happens with kids. Right. And it's not so you want to get an idea of it, just watch that. Yeah, no. A couple of years ago, it emerged that um, BBC Studios and other studios where shows and uh, movies are made in the UK or have been pedophile factories since the 1960s. So, And it was sort of, mm-hmm. it emerged, you know, as one thing cascaded, one story cascaded and another people came forward and then, you know, it was out of the box and everyone was talking for about six months there. And I mean, the scale of it is just staggering. Um, but not staggering in retrospect because everyone knew it. It's the same kind of thing here. It's, it comes mm-hmm. with the territory of entertainment, in quotes, in the modern age. Of... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one little detail about Weinstein. Um, I was curious about anything he's producing that's coming up that might have been controversial. There's something coming out. I think it's already done. It's coming out the new year. I think it's for HBO or some other made-for-TV show. It's going to be a multi-part series, um, not documentary, uh, fiction, fictionalized, but based on the true events, I guess, of 
the Waco massacre. Mm-hmm. That was the only mm-hmm. political red flag I got from anything he's actively involved in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, um, yeah. Well, well, that's well, that's been going on. <laughs> um, that's been going on in the U.S. I mean, I don't think that's really going. Yeah, that's been going on in the U.S. Um, that's kept people in the no. U.S. distracted. In Europe, the big thing is probably still Catalonia. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, we're, we were we were all watching that, and and then suddenly Vegas happened, and I pretty much not looked at anything else since then. But yeah, to get I suppose that, anyway back to Catalonia. I'll just continue where I left off three weeks ago. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of it. What, what, two little things have come up since then that caught my eye. Um, they're calling for a refer- similar type independence referendums in two regions of northern Italy. Um, apparently, they're going mm. to have polls, a bit like the Venice region did. Oh, it's going to be Venice again, actually, yeah, and Ven- Lombardy next to it. Um, again, this won't be, it'll, it'll be like before, it'll be non-binding polls, but just the fact that this is in the air um, in other parts of Europe gives you an idea of why this would be a dangerous thing for the powers that be in Europe to have, you know, proliferating everywhere and why Catalonia would be a big deal. Okay, geographically, it's just a tiny part of Spain. The implications, the knock-on effects, the signaling it gives out to everywhere else that referenda for independence are cool, are dangerous um, for them, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second little item that caught my eye, I mean, I'm not sure what the current status is between Madrid and Barcelona, but... Uh, apparently some of the organizers of the independence movement in Catalonia are calling on the public to withdraw their cash from Spanish banks. So mm-hmm. that sounds like upping the ante there big time. What, what, what is the current status? What Politically, um, are they talking? The... No, the fact that they Article 155, where they basically rescind uh, Catalonia's independence. They rescind their mm-hmm. existing autonomy. Mm-hmm. Which means well, what, no. What they said was that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, they basically, um, you know, Rajoy is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Um, he basically said that he didn't. They didn't want to like rescind um, Catalonia's um, autonom- you know uh, autonomy. autonomy, their status as um, their status, you know, their autonomic status as in the country, yeah. but. Yes, as an autonomous region, but because of the illegality of the uh, the referendum and the actions of the the Catalonian Parliament, that they were basically dissolving the Catalonian Parliament and um, taking over direct control of the region, and that within um, like in six months they plan on having an election that will you know elect a new. Um, you know, autonomous parliament, basically. Mm-hmm. But so it's kind of like a almost like a halfway measure. They're not totally rescinding. Well, um, that's just it's, that's just quibbling um, over the quibbling yeah. over the details. They actually have done yeah. it, and they are doing it. Uh, yeah. But um, I mean, yeah. So he says we're only doing it uh, temporarily so that we can control the situation. They want to 
they wanna they're trying to arrest and depose uh Puigdemont the the Prime Minister of Catalonia and several others ahead of the, the Catalonian police. They wanna arrest him or get him out of the way. They wanna just remove a bunch of the conspirators as they see it, um, for independence and in in doing that they have kind of more or less activated at Article one five five where they're you know the, the Spanish uh, government is uh, permitted to uh, you know uh, rescind um, the autonomous status of any of the regions if they are acting uh, illegally or against the constitution. So they've more or less done that, but mm-hmm. as as you said, Harrison, it's it's with a with a proviso that we're just doing this temporarily so that. Uh, we can have elections. We're going to plan. So it really is a, a coup d'état in a certain sense, if you can call it that. It's a coup d'autonomous region um, where you're, they're planning to boot out the existing uh, independence-minded uh, uh, powers in Catalonia and then have elections. You know, so, but six months is quite a long time. So they're going to Spain is going to pretty much have its uh, its its control or have mm-hmm. control over pretty much all of Catalonia and everything that happens. Uh, in Catalonia for the next six months until supposedly they have elections and then they can install a uh, government that is more uh, in keeping with uh, the you know original kind of remit of, of the, the autonomy that's given to these regions, which is that it's limited autonomy. And then they can have it back, basically. So it's, um, yeah. But of course then, Puigdemont in response to this is, is threatening again. They're threatening all over the place, you know. <clears throat> threaten, threatening, they're, they're threatening each other all over the place, so it's one side threatens and the other threatens back. Pigdemont is, is threatening to declare unilateral independence. Um, uh, on Which fr- he has been since day one, right? N- no, I mean it was it was always it was always with uh, proviso. He hasn't been. No, I mean not. What do you mean since day one? Since the day after the referendum. No, since the day after the referendum, he he said that he wanted to discuss things. Now that the people have said this, let's discuss. So he f- figured that this uh, vote was a way to. Uh, basically give him uh, leverage uh, going into discussions. People have voted, let's see what we can do. And probably they wanted something close to, at least something close to the, uh, the Basque country and various different changes uh, that would give them more autonomy. And uh, that's what they expected. Who knows exactly what, because those, uh, those discussions didn't happen. And the Spanish government was, well, you know, you better make it clear. Are you going to declare independence or not? And they didn't, weren't interested in discussing anything, you know. Because uh, they, they saw the, the the elections or the the referendum as basically illegal and it didn't happen as far as they're concerned it's, it's doesn't exist. Uh, so what are you going to do? You're going to back down now and go back to the way it was before, or are you going to are you still uh, threatening to to declare independence? And Puigdemont was no, I'm not necessarily going to declare independence. I want to talk. And the Spanish government was we don't want to talk to you. It's basically you know declare as we have. The referendum null and void, and go back to where it was before. Stop rabble rousing, or we will we will activate Article One Five Five. That is what the Spanish government has done. Now, in response to that, Puigdemont says that they are uh, is threatening to declare uh, unilateral independence on Friday yeah, of of this week coming. Um, before, in theory, yeah, actually, I'm I'm reading here from Gabby's uh, Gabby, who's in Spain, her update. Uh, she's that is before Article One Five Five is activated. The Spanish government is basically saying we're going to activate it. The reason they're, they're the reason it hasn't been officially activated is because the Spanish Senate has to ratify it or approve the activation of Article One Five Five, and I think that's on Thursday of this week. So um, 
but that would happen. Uh, I don't know why they're delaying, but maybe they have to go through some official process. So on Thursday, uh, after uh, the Spanish government stating we are going to activate Article 155, uh, it has to go to the Senate, and then the Senate will say, cool, go ahead, and then they'll do it. But before that happens, Pugdemont is now claiming uh, to the extent that he, he, you know, who knows whether he's going to do it or not, or if it's bluff and bluster, he's saying that before they do that, before they approve it in the Senate, we'll declare it unilateral independence uh, um, and, and call for elections. He will also call for elections. Um, new elections, which will basically just, you know, reaffirm, he thinks, Puigdemont thinks, will reaffirm the, 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 the vote or the, uh, the people's desire for for independence. Now that everybody knows uh, what's at play, let's have elections and see what way they fall. So Puigdemont's falling back on the whole democratic, the power of the people. Basically, people have spoken. Okay, they've spoken a referendum. Okay, you don't believe the referendum is valid. Let's have new elections and see who they vote for. If they vote for me in a major, in, a, in a, a decent majority, then that suggests that the majority of people who voted, and you know, so it's giving people another. It's a, the elections would be another referendum. This is the elections called by Puigdemont. Mm. Would be another referendum. Um, to solidify and uh, I reaffirm the the, the 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 fact that the people in, in Catalonia want independence. Um, I read that in the previous elections in Catalonia, his party won only forty seven percent. Right. So he wants to see how it goes now. So it's basically using he, he's trying to he's leveraging the people, the, the the power of democracy and the people's will and the people's voice, and uh, to make it more difficult for Madrid to to make it more risky for them to flagrantly dismiss that. But it seems that Madrid doesn't have much of a problem in doing that, you know. Um, well, the, what about the Spanish constitution? Is there anything about if anyone wants to succeed, these conditions must be met? No, it has to be negotiated. Negotiated? Yeah, it would, ha- it would have to be negotiated. There's no, there's no, nothing in the Spanish constitution that says anyone part of Spain or any autonomous region can just say, okay, we're going to leave. And, off, you know, unilateral, uh, a unilateral declaration of independence, there's nothing in the Spanish constitution that says they can do it. In fact, I think it explicitly says they can't. That's why the Spanish, Madrid was saying that it's unconstitutional and they're basically, it's illegal. And therefore the referendum is is, is null and void. It's an illegal referendum. Um, but of course, so it's that whole thorny issue of like, if a country wants to be independent, then why should they abide by the, by the, by the rules of the country that they're trying to break away from? course the rules of the country that or the constitution of the country that are trying to break away from will say you're not allowed to break away so how do you ever break away then how do you ever get independence if, the, if you have to abide by the rules and the rules say you can never be independent it makes independence a, a, an impossibility ever so if you ever if it ever happened in any region and in a country like that where the people in a certain region wanted to be independent they wouldn't be able to so it's like independence is not on the table ever and that's their that's the catalan supposedly the catalan leadership i know their problem but um, the whole thing's kind of stupid, you know, in a certain sense. And to be honest, if I was to come down on one side or another, I think it's it, it's a bad idea. It's needless, you know. I mean, I could take the position of, you know, yeah, you know, stir things up and wreck the place. Uh, stick it to the stick it to the man, you know. Stick it to the Madrid EU bureaucratic powers. Get them all, you know. Do what they don't want you to do, type of thing. But I don't see this ending very well for anybody. I don't see a really good reason uh, for the Catalonian people to. Uh, to, the, to whatever percentage actually want uh, to be independent, I don't see a good reason for them to really go to the extent of, of becoming independent. You know, I mean, uh, there's plenty of other peoples in, in different parts of Europe who, who see themselves as a separate people, have their own dialect or their own, uh, of, of, you know, of a language, or whatever. And um, 
and are you know can cite lots of reasons why they're getting a bad deal, blah blah blah. But you know, it's a big thing to to break away from a country. Um, After that, that, five hundred years, of right, energy. right, of of, of being, uh, yeah. Uh, and is if it, it's if it's going to cause an awful lot of strife and struggle and, and probably economic issues and all that stuff for everybody, why would you why would you do all that? You know, yeah, you know, in theory, in an ideal world, everybody would be able to do whatever they wanted and have independence and stuff like that and, and go with wh- how they feel. Yeah, I've but, always wanted to make up a flag and go out there and declare this is my place. Right. Well, you got to be willing to you got to be willing to pay the price for that. There's got to be a price for it, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if there's someone who doesn't want you to do it. And in this case, there's clearly someone who doesn't want the Catalans to break away. And now they're willing to pay the price. So the, the Catalan leadership willing to uh, wade into all of the, you know, the, 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 the chaos and the crisis and the social and political and economic upheaval that would undoubtedly result. And of course, they could say, well, it, there would be no upheaval if Madrid would just let us go. Well, they're not going to let you go. So that is part of the thing that you have to decide. Uh, that's part of the of the conditions that uh, that you would have to. It's your shared responsibility. Consider yeah. right. Well, you can't just say, "Well, I don't like it, therefore it doesn't exist," and and they should not do what they are going to do. Well, that's not what's happening. So, and ultimately, it's it's what's you know what's best for the people. And I, I don't see Catalan people having a particularly hard time of it. Basically, you know, it's the same. It's a kind of social justice thing, really. To be honest. It's people not accepting or not taking stock of the fact that, yes, the world isn't perfect. And yes, we all might like to live in an ideal world. But you know what? Maybe that's not the best thing right now or even ever. If you want to get philosophical philosophical about it and realize that, you know, adversity and struggle is kind of necessary for human beings to progress and learn and all that kind of stuff. And we don't live in an ideal world and trying to force an ideal world on any part of the world or any section of society or an, an entire society uh, means that you will have to force people, a large number of people in that society to, to go along with your idea of utopia. Yeah. And that by implication, you know, uh, by definition almost um, implies social chaos. And yeah. are you willing to have social chaos just so you can get your jollies, basically? You can have make, make manifest your ideology. Causing chaos may not fix whatever chaos you perceive. No, exactly. And it won't probably. Because, you know, the bottom line, there's a rule, there's an underlying rule in life, which is that you've got to suffer in one way or another. And anybody who is motivated, any, anybody, any, anybody today who has an ideology that is infused or informed by the idea of this will a- avoid suffering for me, I will, I will basically reduce my suffering to zero. Or that's what, in, behind the scenes, that you're, that's what you're striving for. Well, you know, you're... You better think again, because it ain't gonna happen. But if you, I mean, if you're informed by that, uh, if you, if that's your thinking, then you're in danger, basically. Madrid has no one to blame but itself. Um, its uh, its friends in NATO have been super supportive in handing it someone to blame. Russia, of course. Um, which is uh, it's it, it's that's an it's derogation of its own responsibility. I mean, think about it. You're in the government. Or maybe not even you're not in the government that's elected. You're part of the permanent bureaucracy, deep state even, of a country. You have one basic job to keep the country together, to keep it secure, yeah, to keep the economy, you know, not at war. But it basically comes down to one thing, keep it together. And they're failing in it. Oh, they're doing a terrible job at managing it I mean what they didn't see this coming before now and they, then it happens and then they 
crack down hard on it and the, the press looks at all the liberals everywhere go, oh my god what are they doing but this, for, this doesn't happen in our world but, but it does but for them to have done something about it I mean I'm not sure that problem is solvable I'm not sure they could have anything that they could have done would have stopped Catalan, Catalan from the Catalonians from demanding independence you know uh, I'm not sure uh, because the problem there you could say it's like the, as a result of the you could track it back to the economic crash in 2008 that pissed Catalans off more and want and encouraged them to want uh, to be independent and stuff but then that's is, is the economic crash of 2007-2008 the responsibility of the Spanish government well, I mean these people have their hands tied you have to go further beyond to bankers or someone behind that who, who mm-hmm. or, or the general state or the general decrepit state of the world that causes these kind of situations that there is one overwhelming trend that the government of Madrid shares with every other nation state within NATO. They do not look after what is in the best national interest. They're all about this one worldism where if we ride the coattails of the US, right. we'll all be grand. And that's the, they, they derogated, they didn't pay attention to the national interest. They paid attention to whatever Brussels says or, or London or more specifically Washington. And as a result, their national interests, things that would have been best for the country, are, are they, they fall by the wayside. And it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a long-term process. We have to go back to... The, I can't um, find exactly what it was. Go back to join the EU or, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing that they've done. I mean, maybe the people who are in power now are not the ones responsible for that. Do you know what I mean? It's a very hard thing to, to define. You know, you keep track. You have to go back further and further and further. And, and, and that... Uh, not taking care, you know, following Washington's, you know, uh, say say so or following their dictates is something that, you know, many other countries have done as well and have caused many other problems across Europe, you know. So, yeah, in a certain sense, it's, it's uh, well, I just can't, I can't, I don't think you can put blame on one singular person, one one particular government that's in power right now is that being responsible for it. There's a set of conditions in no, which no, they yeah, find yeah. themselves. No, no, there's, a, there's a political culture in the yeah. West where they just have, forgotten or lost or don't understand anymore how to rule. They're, yeah. they're too infused with ideology. Right, they don't right? care. The West is the best, the US is hmm. big brother, whatever that ideology is. And they're not paying attention to facts on the ground. They haven't been for a long time. Which yeah. would, in this specific case, I think, they would have, would have been able to stave this off, to head this off at the pass. Um, maybe. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they just simply couldn't. Um, for what it's worth, Putin brought this up in his Valdai speech this week, uh, kind of obliquely, he did, I think he made specific reference to Spain and his, he reiterated uh, mm-hmm. Russia's position, which was, you know, it's an eternal matter. And he kind of hit on what I'm getting at here by saying, it's an eternal matter for that sovereign state. Reminding Spain, you're supposed to be a sovereign state. Mm. This thing where, well, yeah, we're Spanish, but we're globalists, we're EU, but we're, no, 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 you've only got one job. Anyway, my favorite part from the speech was where he says, at one time, the apologists for globalization were trying to convince us that universal economic interdependence was a guarantee against conflicts and geopolitical rivalry. Alas, that this did not happen. Moreover, the nature of the contradictions grew more complicated, becoming multi-layered and non-linear. What he's getting at is that the West, the U.S., the Washington consensus was so focused on globalization as it saw it and wanted to impose it on everyone that 
all these things we weren't paying attention to, the contradictions between cultures, societies within countries like in Spain, were there. They're bubbling. They need to be dealt with. You know, they can't just put an, one ideology over it and say, well, it doesn't matter. It's all one world. Um, everything's good. They weren't paying attention to multi-layered things that are becoming non-linear, i.e. there's crisis breaking out everywhere because of this failed Washington consensus above it. Mm. Yeah, and when, when the crises break out because of that uh, and people get discontented, um, the powers in particular countries just decide to clamp down even further. Instead of addressing the problem, uh, they decide to just... Uh, uh, beat some heads and, and stop people from from being upset, which obviously is a recipe for disaster because you're just going to make people more upset. And the root of the problem, as you just described, is not um, is not being addressed. So, um, yeah, I think. But uh, Putin also made he referred to in reference to Catalonia, he referred to Sir uh, Kosovo, and the uh, saying that uh, that according to him, the origin of this kind of separatist. Uh, independence movement um, was you know, started in uh, in Kosovo when right. when Western European powers and the Americans uh, said, "Yeah, Kosovo, no problem. You can be an independent country." You know, um, I'm not sure if there's you can draw that link really directly because you know um, not a lot happened after well, Kosovo. But I'm not sure people in Catalonia are thinking of Kosovo. No, um, but it's non-linear. The yeah. point is, his point is a bit like it reminds me of Caesar's where he says. Are you sure you want to go with bringing in that piece of legislation? I think in 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 in, in the case that Caesar refers to, it's about this this massive trial involving alleged conspirators and stuff, and 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 they ended up executing these conspirators. Um, and this is a similar thing here. In, if once you lay down the principle of something, it's going to come back and bite you on the rear. Mm. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if that was his exact point or whether, because he also said that um, he, he used it to highlight the Western um, hypocrisy in supporting Kosovo and uh, independence. And then now uh, Catalonia isn't allowed to be independent uh, under pretty much exactly the same terms, where you just have a group of people who claim that they want to be a nation state. Kosovo is fine. Catalonia is not fine. So this kind of you know double standards is... Uh, is a major problem. Um, yeah, and he said he said basically that Europe should have been paying attention, and because they they all rallied on board for basically the disintegration of a European sovereign state, that if they would have been paying attention back then, they might not be having these like separatist problems today. Right, and Yugoslavia, he means, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, who knows? I think it's just generalized chaos. Um, we're in a period of generalized chaos. That's my explanation for but, everything. But are we likely to see a a separatist movement and independence referendum within the Russian Federation during this chaos? No. No. Probably not. So it's generalized, but it's also localized. Uh-huh. Well, general, it, this is one aspect of the generalized chaos that has many different facets. I don't mean that... There's going to be independence movements breaking out everywhere. I yeah, mean that, yeah. that that this independence movement is part of a generalized chaos around the world in many different areas that we're experiencing, you know, for want of a, a more specific explanation. Um, yeah. 
What about the other well one in Kurdistan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was nipping so the, the the latest news on that one is, uh, yeah, it was nipping the bud and pretty effectively so far. Um, just was it earlier? Yeah, well, last week sometime the uh, the Iraqis basically launched an an operation to retake the city and um, province, including all the oil fields in Kirkuk, and so they basically they did it. They say, well, it was almost like almost without a shot fired. So there were minor skirmishes, but for the most part, it was like a like a bloodless coup. Almost they went in, um, and the Peshmerga. Um, some of them wanted to fight, and Barzani and the the um, the governor of Kirkuk region had basically said, um, "Don't fire first, but if you're fired upon, then you know, give them everything you've got." Which kind of uh, you know put them on a on a defensive position, um, but when the when the Iraqi army and the the PMUs got there, the um, the the Peshmerga didn't really do anything. There, like I said, there were some minor skirmishes, but a lot of them just fled. And apparently, this was because of some intervention from the the Iranian um, Revolutionary Guard General uh, Suleimani. Mm basically has good relations with with some of the you know some of the kurds basically the uh, you know not the ones tied with the barzani clan um more of the like the um talibani um um kurds and basically a lot of the because a lot of the kurds don't like barzani so a lot of the then the peshmerga is kind of it's split along these lines so a lot of these a lot of these peshmerga just just you know ran away they're like we're not fighting for this so the the iraqis very quickly came in you know, took control of the you know city administration building, got control of the um, the one of the major air bases there that the Kurds had, the oil fields. So last I heard, like Kirkuk province was almost like completely back under the control of the Iraqis. Mm-hmm. Um, the like the Barzani has been pretty silent, but um, I think either him or it might have been Peshmerga generals or you know leaders has basically said that they're you know they're still gonna fight. Uh, you know, this blatant act of aggression by the Iraqis, but so far nothing's really come of it. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, and that's, that's like if, if Iraqi Kurdistan was going to like succeed in any way, they really kind of needed Kirkuk because that's, that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the oil is. That's where the wealth is. That's what they wanted. Like that's why they took over that, that area, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the past couple of years because they wanted that, they wanted that territory because it's a rich territory. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they basically softly eth- ethnically cleansed it, you know, got rid of all the Arabs and, uh, and Yazidis and, you know, um, you know, just populated it with uh, with the Kurdish population. So, um, I don't think yeah, that a, kind of that's. It, it was probably never going to really happen. It was a silly idea to begin with, especially. I mean, I suppose they, yeah. they te- tested the waters a little bit uh, a few weeks, you know, a few, couple of months ago, really, when they started talking about it, and uh, the Turks, the Iranians, and the Russians, <clears throat> and of course, the Iraqis all were like, "No way, it's a bad idea. It's not going to happen." And uh, I think the 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 Kurds in, in Iraq. Uh, realize that uh, yeah I mean there's no point in even trying this you know certainly not trying to enforce it militarily you know because they're basically not going to win because they don't have support from anybody around them and in fact if they were to you know I mean I'm, I'm sure they're pretty tired of uh, the past six years or so of <clears throat> of conflict uh, to one extent or another with, with the jihadis and stuff so um, it, it would it, if, if they had you know militarily opposed it and started some kind of serious they would serious war they would have um they would have suffered a lot and 
who knows if you know ISIS wouldn't have got in there and you would have just kickstarted the whole thing again with ISIS taking taking parts of Iraq and stuff. So it was a really bad idea. I mean, at this time, I mean, it's a crazy idea. You know, it's like, um, you you know, in in that at this coming on the heels basically of 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 six years of of ISIS running rampant across Iraq and Syria and, and there being a lot of uh, a lot of dead, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead and killed in ongoing conflict and war uh, in that whole region of northern of, of Syria and northern Iraq and central Iraq up to northern Iraq. Um, the idea that you would start another conflict over independence at this time is just, uh, yeah, I think that's a bad idea. And the IRG were so, involved in this, the Iranian guards. Uh, just well, as far as I know, Remember. just kind of as mediators. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's the same IRG that they basically Trump, Trump slapped sanctions on right. a couple of weeks ago. Right. The U.S. is like the referee all the way over there, right? And the playing the 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 game is taking place over there on the other side, and the referee blows his whistle and says, "Red card for you. You're off the pitch." What's the player do? Well, he just ignores him. Yeah, well, America has to maintain its the appearance of it being a, the global policeman, you know, if only in if only in name, you know. Um, it doesn't really have much power to to do that kind of that that job that it that used to used to have the power to do. Uh, now it's uh, but it's, the Americans are sticking with the with the appearance, you know. Uh, they're certainly keeping up appearances in that respect because, like we've said before in the show, a big part of America's uh, ability to influence the world and project its power is kind of through is through its reputation as as being the big bad USA who you know speaks softly and carries a big stick and that kind of thing but um, people recently particularly over the past couple of years with uh, events in Syria people have realized and many countries have realized that uh, America uh, doesn't really carry a big stick anymore you know certainly its stick has been downgraded to something closer to a twig I think and so people aren't so scared of it anymore um, so they've switched that around. It's now become inverted. Instead of uh, speaking softly and carrying a big stick, now they're speaking loudly and carrying a twig. Uh, <laughs> Touche. Harrison, any idea what the situation is around Deir Ezzor? Um, You know, I, I haven't been, you know, I've just been following kind of the, the, the overall situation. I haven't noticed anything really, like, big. Basically, just what's happening Um you know, you, you hear news like every couple of days, the, the Syrians and, and Russians will retake like an oil field in the region and or a new city like the the city just, um, you know, southeast along the Euphrates of Deir Ezzor was just taken by the Syrians uh, from ISIS. But then, you know, at the same time, the SDF, the Kurds are taking more, um, you know, oil fields from from ISIS. And mm. it's it, it's kind of quieted down a bit but for a couple weeks there it was um the turks the iranians the russians the syrians they were all like getting in the news and uh, all making official statements about u.s support for isis and um you know in this region specifically and basically um you know thwarting syrian efforts to to fight isis and facilitating you know um, movement of of isis terrorists either from um, you know, Deir Ezzor to, to somewhere else or from the little like the little region on the border with Jordan that uh, the Americans have that base at, El Tanf, and, you know, facilitating movement from there to Hama or Homs, 
um, when there was like a big, you know, um, you know Al Qaeda offensive to uh, against the Syrians there. Um, but so far, it's just been kind of a steady, steady development of you know the Syrians and Russians taking territory from ISIS mm. and the SDF kind of doing the same thing on the other on the other side. Now, I guess the question will be, you know, what what happens after that, right? Because um, if the if the Kurds are basically you know, and, uh, you know, via, well, if the Americans via the Kurds are trying to hold on to this territory, um, where again, just like, just like Kirkuk in Iraq, this is a region in Syria where there's just a ton of, of mm-hmm. oil wells and oil fields and, and infrastructure and things like that. You know, d- do they think that they're going to be able to hold on to it? Mm-hmm. Um, just a little bit of news this week was that the, um, some Russian helicopters, <clears throat> excuse me, flew into, um, one of the Kurdish, um, towns in northern Aleppo, um, and uh, the at least the rumors were that on board the the helicopters with the Russians were was like a, a a Turkish delegation, and they were basically meeting with the SDF and talking about something. But um, so even though the you know even though there's this SDF um, American kind of partnership going on there, the the Russians too have you know for, like for for months and months, if not longer, been talking to and interacting and even cooperating in some cases with the, with the Kurds, like with the SDF. Mm-hmm. So, um, so who knows like what's going to actually happen? Do they, do they think that they can get away with, um, you know, kind of like a, an Iraqi Kurdistan kind of thing, or, you know, a lot of the like analysis that I've been reading says that they basically have no chance. Like that would just be stupid. But right. so, so I don't know, I don't know what the end game there is because it just, um, you know, at once ISIS is almost well, they're on the ropes. They've 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 basically got like a bunch of desert and maybe one you know semi-major town left in Syria. You know, that's not gonna it's not gonna be very long before they don't have that anymore. You know, what's mm-hmm. what's gonna happen after that? Well, you know, if the Kurds try anything stupid in Syria, I mean, the the Syrian army, you know. You know, mm-hmm. could there be a clash there? I don't know. And of course, the Tur- the Turks. I mean, it's a similar situation. Um... Uh, with with like you said with Iraqi Kurdistan, I mean that's just uh, that fizzled and went nowhere because no one wanted it. No no powers in the region wanted it. Uh, America might want it, um, but nobody else does. So in terms of the idea of a, a Syrian Kurdistan, um, you know obviously the the Syrian government, Syrian military are are dead set against that, like a partition of the country. Um, the the Turks. The same applies. Turks, the Turkish government did not want, uh, and they made it very clear that they were, they would not stand for an Iraqi Kurdistan, and they pretty much said the same thing about a Syrian Kurdistan. Uh, the Turks just don't want a Kurdistan anywhere because of the threat that it poses to uh, the Kurdish regions in, in, in Turkey, maybe breaking away as well. You know, in fact, there's a good link there between um, Spain and uh, and Syria or Kurdistan or Turkey, that kind of thing, because uh, the Spanish government, one of the problems with, for the Spanish government, if Catalonia were to become independent, then what happens with the rest of the of the, the other uh, autonomous regions in Spain, several of whom might think, well, you know, maybe we'll have independence too, and then you've no more Spain left. Uh, Turkey, in a similar way, doesn't want any kind of Iraqi Kurdistan or Syrian Kurdistan, because if that happens, then it threatens, uh, it's a threat to Turkish territorial integrity because of the Kurds, the many Kurds that are in southern, south, uh, eastern area there of um, Turkey, who would then want their their own independent homeland as well, which they've been 
uh, fighting for, clamoring for, for for many many years. Um, so I don't see any Syrian Kurdistan happening, and I don't really know know what the point of that is, or what why the Americans would be supporting the this Syrian Democratic Forces um, in in attempting to take more oil wells. I think today they or yesterday they there's a story about them taking an oil well back from the Syrian military. The SDF took a, a an area with an oil well um, back from the Syrian military. So um, that kind of, you know, push and shove is, is still going on. To what end? I don't really see any. It's just, I mean, America's supporting it. Why? Just because it keeps them in the region or something? And, you know, they keep being able to drop bombs and make money for defense contractors. Maybe that's, you know... Uh, as we all know, money is uh, or war is profitable in and of itself. As long as you're dropping bombs or sh- uh, firing bullets, it's um, you're still making money. So there's always a rationale to have a, have a little war, no matter what, or keep a, a kind of conflict going, regardless of the fact that it has no real point. Because the point is that having the war c- or the conflict continue is the end or the point in itself, because it makes money. But yeah, in terms of Russia, I mean, I think they're just, the Americans have been, like you were saying, Harrison, behind the scenes, the Russians are doing a lot. And I really don't, I think they're being checkmated left, right and center, um, or checked at least left, right and center by, by the Russians. And I mean, it's no surprise, you know. The Middle East, the reason that we're talking about here is uh, is Russia's backyard, you know. Um, and of course, it's Turkey's immediate backyard and it's a serious country and it's Iraq, it's, it's the Iraqis country and their next door neighbors and stuff and you know what it's not america's uh backyard or neighbors or even close you know um so those countries all more or less being aligned iran turkey syria iraq russia yeah as much as big bad america might like to think of itself as capable of you know telling everybody to jump and 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 dictating terms um I don't, in that context, I don't think it's possible for them really to do anything, you know, and there's even reports recently of, you know, of course, we know a couple of weeks ago, Saudi Arabia bought S-400s from, uh, from Syria or placed an order for S-400s from, from Russia. Russia. And, uh, and immediately the day afterwards, the Americans were like, oh, we sold them some stuff too. Just, it just yeah. so happened that we had a contract that just went out the day after Russia, uh, sealed a con- signed a contract with them for the S-400s. We signed a contract for lots of big, met- I mean, weapons and, and, and missiles and, and bombs. Oh, the best ones, really, really good ones. We sold them some great stuff. Yeah, they're our, they're our friend as well, you know, just FYI, because we sell stuff to them as well. Just wanted everybody to know that. Just, you know, you might have seen that Russia sold them stuff. Well, well we sold them stuff as well. In fact, we sold them more. <coughs> And they liked our stuff better than the Russian stuff, you know. That just just wanted to get that in there anyway. <laughs> it's so transparent. Yeah, and then there's more dealings going on between Saudis and uh, the Saudis and the Russians. Just just recently, you know, uh, there's uh, uh, remind me. Do you know anything about the Sergeant? I'm having a, a blank on on what has happened oh. the past few past few days. The oh. the Saudis and Russians yeah. talking together. Um. Well, well, there was the. There was the big well. The big thing was that the the Saudi king made made that trip to Moscow, and this was around the right. time that yeah. that the the S400 deal was you know at, at least preliminarily made. Mm. Um, it's not as far along as the the deal with Turkey, um, for example. But this was the first trip from a, a Saudi king to Russia ever. Right. Like uh, so, it was it was like a, a huge deal. 
Um, and so it, and it's very interesting coming just, you know, as it does when we look at the, you know, the, um, the U S's relationship with, with Saudi Arabia, it's almost as if, well, there's been hints of this actually in the last couple of years, even before Trump came into office with the, the Saudis kind of signaling at least, uh, an intention of working closer with Russia on certain issues. And so this was kind of the first big, um, you know, thing that happened that actually showed that it, it might be moving in that direction. Um, because right. even, even, even sev- like several mainstream, uh, like magazines and journals and newspapers in the past month have had articles, um, that have been surprisingly not like anti-Russian, just reporting the facts on Russian influence in the Middle East and how, you know, Russia is now a major player, you know, making the admission that, that when something goes wrong in the Middle East, all, like the Middle Eastern countries turn to Russia for help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we see this in, in Libya and Saudi Arabia, or Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Iran. And so all of these, um, you know, all these countries are, are not, even, not only getting closer together, um, Russia, it's, it's, it's been, it's kind of like we may be seeing the kind of hints of a, a very major kind of, um, you know, geostrategic shift going on in the entire Middle East mm-hmm. where, you know, Russia is seen as the, the major player. Um, right. And part of, at least a big part of that has been the total success of the, the military operation in Syria. Right. And uh, the Russian military has even said that the, you know, it's, it's almost finished, you know, we're going to, we're going to leave, you know, very soon. And of course we'll still have, you know, some Russians in, in Syria to run special operations and, and to, you know, deal with, um, you know, training and things like that and working with the Syrians, but the, the military operation is almost over. And you can see that just by, if you look at, just look at a map comparing, you know, what Syria looked like um, at the beginning of the, the Russian intervention and today, mm-hmm. it is it is completely different. And um, and even just in the last few months, the the amount of territory like taken back by the Syrians has, it's been like an exponential, um, you know, increase in, in the the, the 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 amount of territory taken back um so it it is kind of like it's it's a done deal you know at this point <clears throat> at least in terms of the the objectives that the the russian military you know set when when going in right and so that that shows i mean it, it's 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 basically capitalism um in the mil, in the military and geo strategic sense is that when you've got a, a product or you know, and, and your your kind of credibility and your effectiveness as a product, when you show that it actually works, well, that's what people are going to go with. They're going to say, okay, well, you know, this car is actually better made than that car. You know, nothing personal against, you, you know, you guys. Your car just isn't as good. And so people in the region are looking at Russia and saying, well, you know, Russia actually has, you know, does what it says it's going to do and is actually successful. Look mm-hmm. at what the Americans have done. You know, right. they, they've just been, it's been a gong show for yeah. for almost 20 years. So what do you expect is going to happen? Mm. The real deal here is oil. Between Russia and Saudi Arabia, that's a quarter of the planet's market. Mm. When Russia and Saudi Arabia are making deals, something is coming whereby Saudi oil is no longer bought and sold in, dollars, yeah. in American dollars. Well, that's, that's Bringing I mean, an end to... The Russians have been Everything, t- talking about cryptocurrency to, to to buy and sell oil and stuff. I mean, Russia and China have been making moves in that direction, obviously, and it's yeah, it's pretty bad news for 
for the Americans. But um, I mean, the Guardian on the on it was on October fifth or fourth that the Saudi king um, Salman went to Russia, and uh, the the Guardian had a a headline: Saudi King's visit to Russia heralds shift in global power structures. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. and um, there you know different different outlets all um, basically saying that um, yeah, this is pretty major. And um, at the Valdai concert, our Valdai conference, um, uh, just recently, Putin talked about the uh, Saudi and uh, Russia Saudi ties and said they. Um, Plans to there's plans to extend them and to enhance those ties. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, it was a three billion arms deal. It wasn't just S four hundreds. It was a, the, the the weapon. It was an arms deal. That one of the things they signed on that visit was uh, Russia selling um, Saudi Arabia three billion dollars worth of uh, of of arms de- arms that um, tanks yeah, Kalashnikovs that included S four hundred. Yeah. Well, more than that, they're going to build factories in Saudi Arabia that make Russian weapons. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that kind of long-term <clears throat> investment. That's you think about how different that is. Can you imagine Lockheed saying, "I tell you, we'll cement our trust and partnership with you, which has been going on ninety years now, by actually creating jobs in your country and building them there." That's right. a much better deal. You and I are good long-term. No, for ninety years they said, "Here's a finished high, high-end value product. You pay top dollar for it," and that was the best deal they thought they'd get. Now Russia comes in and. <laughs> undercuts that by a lot, effectively giving them really cheaper deals mm-hmm. for the same kind of firepower, and in other sectors too, nuclear, who knows what else, energy exchange. I mean, they're mm. just they're they're, they're going to be played out of the ballpark, left, right, and center. They are, and I mean, I wouldn't trust the Saudis as far as I could throw them at anyway, you know, and, and that they're that they're probably looking at this as a way to kind of leverage more stuff for more something. Uh, whatever they want from from the U.S., you know, um, whatever their terms could be, they say, listen, by by going to Russia, they send a message to the Americans and say, listen, you know, we don't actually need necessarily to go with you. We we might like to go, you know, and be friends with other people. And if, what's so? What's our friendship worth to you? Type of thing, you know. Um, and maybe it was this that that uh, they sent they sold them Thad missiles basically the next day, which might have yeah. been a response. That I'm sure that wasn't. That the Americans just dumped that on the Saudis. The Saudis had been asking for that, and the Americans had been holding back on it. And the Saudis went, "Well, okay, we'll go and buy some stuff from Russia. How do you feel now?" And the Americans quickly changed their tune, basically. So the Americans are being manipulated, and it's not a, so it's not a nice, uh, necessarily a nice position to be in. But yeah, I mean, it's so different. Uh, Russia's Russia has the opportunity. Is the thing Russia, both Russia and China, in in the context of uh, uh, the American century, you know. Uh, where America is the world's policeman and stuff and has gone around the world, you know, making friends here and there, but by and large kind of intimidating countries and, and forcing them to do what America says. And that just, that that context or that, that situation uh, is, is ripe for someone else with something to offer to come in and say, hey, I hear you're getting a kind of a shitty deal from America. Oh, you want to do a deal with me? I mean, there's so many opportunities. And, and, and Russia's going around just basically making friends with everybody and in response to that, uh, America has to threaten people and uh, make enemies, you know, ultimately. And, and they're their own worst enemy in that respect, you know. They're basically, they have no other option because of the situation they find themselves in because of the way they have acted over the past 100 years. They find themselves in a position where they, they're shooting themselves in the foot and they have no other option but to uh, 
to kind of double down on the threats and the intimidation and stuff, which just turns people off more uh, towards them as Russia uh, as Russia's stock uh, effectively in uh, in the eyes of these other countries increases, uh, and China as well, you know, as viable alternatives to uh, an American-led world. And I think we don't really live in an American-led world any, uh, anymore. Anyway, um, we are, we do live in a multipolar world right now. Um, and it's kind of all done, but the the wailing and gnashing of teeth from America, uh, and they're trying to cover that up. They don't want to be too uh, public about about their angst, although it has leaked out very often in, in recent uh, in recent years. But um, because they don't want to don't want to make themselves look too bad, but they can't avoid it. You know, they by their actions that they're forced to take uh, in response to the rise of Russia and China, they they start to sound like. Um, Annoying, whiny, cringing, lying, crybabies, you know? Um, <laughs> and yeah, and it's just made all the worse, made all the worse by, in a certain sense, by Trump being there, you know? Because Trump is very public, is a very public person, you know? So to the extent that he's, you know, the voice of, of American interests, uh, you know, as in deep state interests, um, he's kind of, he's going to be saying the wrong thing. Uh, a lot, and he has been. Mm-hmm. So, well, one thing slightly related that I that I've it's been kind of interesting to watch happen in the last few weeks has been Saudi Arabia's kind of um, how to call it like a PR makeover. Because <laughs> um, I don't know what exactly prompted it. Maybe, well, who knows? But um, just in the past several weeks, they've they've you know, announced that they will be letting women drive, and the the Saudi so government, the Saudi government just introduced like either a new law or a new policy that they're going to be like um, um, watching the clerics more closely, and you know, yeah, yeah. cracking down on extremist yeah. forms of Islam, which is the height of irony, isn't it? Which is interesting, mm-hmm. though, as they turn to. Uh, as they turn to Russia, they turn east. They behave better. They start to behave better. Mm-hmm. While they were best buddies, you know, joined at the hip, you know, like Siamese twin or Middle Eastern twin with uh, with America, uh, it was be as extremist and head choppy, and decapitating as, as you want. You know, no problem. There'll be nothing. Uh, there'll be no nobody will say a bad word about you. I mean, nothing will be done to you. You're safe in your in your enjoyment of head chopping publicly uh, while you're friends with America. But as soon as you turn, uh, start turning to Russia and turning east and north, I suppose, um, suddenly you have to start appearing a bit more democratic, yeah. which is weird. Which is, which it's also weird because the, the, it, it, it's this weird dynamic because with the Americans, they could get away with anything or everything, even though, the official kind of, um, you know, American values is that they stand for, um, you know, Western values and democratic values. And that's like, they, they scream that at the top of their lungs and yet, you know, don't say anything to Saudi Arabia. And then Russia has the, has the point of view of like live and let live. We're not going to criticize you about your, your culture or whatever you do. We just want to do business. Mm -hmm. And yet that seems to get you know the results that actually are more in line with you know the American kind of ideology. It's uh, it's just funny how it works out that way. Yeah, pretty amazing. Hmm. 
Well, what I've been saying, Mother Russia will save the world, teach everyone civilization. <laughs> yeah. Um, by actually practicing it, as opposed to lecturing about it. Well, speaking of Russia, maybe just a, a couple updates on uh, the whole Russia Gate development, um, because investigations into all sorts of things are still going on in the U.S., of course, and um, maybe just well, there's a few different things going on. Like there's, um, you know, one Senate committee or or, or another is uh, is investigating the whole Trump dossier thing, right? Um, into this, you know, this company Fusion GPS that uh, <clears throat> for whom Chris Steele, you know, wrote the dossier. So they're trying to get information on um, basically who wrote this thing, who funded it, right. um, who knew about it when, and um, no, because was writing checks, right? Because there's some there's some speculation and some um, um, concern that, for example, the FBI might have you know paid for it. Um, that it may have had some influence on all of the the unmasking that was going on, you know, surveillance of of U.S. citizens uh, against you know their knowledge and without any real kind of um, you know legal justification. And the Fusion GPS guys, they've so far they've some of them have just refused to talk and um, you know refused to respond to subpoenas. Some have taken the Fifth Amendment. They they won't release their bank statements, um, you know, bank details to find out um, who paid for it. So they're just they're not giving investigators anything. Um, and then um, Samantha Power just testified um, behind closed doors. Um, I think it was like a week or two ago, mm-hmm. but it just it finally like the the first piece of news about that just came out because it was secret, you know, behind closed doors. No one knew what she said. But Trey Gowdy just made a statement in the last week. That she that she basically testified saying that uh, well first of all she was you know just as background for people that don't remember she was the basically UN ambassador at the time and she was allegedly her name was on all of these like unmasking requests mm. um, over the years like to the so many that it, it averaged out to like one a day for like a year or something like that and um, what's an unmasking and so the, request this is when um, uh, like FBI or someone has um, is conducting surveillance on a foreign national for whatever reason, and an American citizen basically gets caught up in that surveillance. So because uh, well, the laws are basically that 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 the um, that person's name then has to be um, like blacked out. So right. um, so anyone reading that intelligence won't know who the American is because that would be well, it'd be a violation of an American They're citizen's right. right to have. Or their own rights to to, to be surveilled, um, you know, with no purpose, basically to just get mm-hmm. be caught up by, accidentally, mm-hmm. and so any kind of any information gained that way can't be used in court against them because you know there was there was no um, you know justification for getting that information in the first place. So what happens with an unmasking request is that for whatever reason, um, you know, the someone in in one of these positions wants to know who that person is who is that citizen maybe they've got a reason maybe they they you know they're in conducting an investigation or whatever but basically we want to know who that american citizen is and so that person then they if that unmasking request is approved they will then know who that was talking to that foreign national and they'll and if they're doing anything shady then they'll know um you know what they're up to and again that can't be used in court for any reason um, or you know, 
uh, can't be used in court, um, you know, legally. So it there's nothing prosecutable that can be gained from that kind of information. But um, it can be used for other purposes. That's the allegation, right? That um, that the some of this unmasking resulted in Mike Flynn getting fired, for for example, and smeared right. in the press. Right. Basically, if if information like that gets leaked then it can, you know, it can be used for character assassination or to ruin someone's career. Basically, you know, all, any, all kinds of things can happen just over and above um, the, you know, violation of privacy. So Samantha Power, who's the UN ambassador, was making like hundreds of requests, which, um, which raises questions, but, well, which raised questions because what is Samantha Power, you know, at the UN doing, uh, you know, unmasking all these people? It's, um, you know, what she doesn't have a history in, um, you know, in any like intelligence or anything, she's just the UN ambassador. Why would she need this information? Um, like, there's no kind of doesn't seem to be any kind of um, justifiable reason for her to be doing this. So she apparently testified, and Trey Gowdy says that <laughs> summed it up in basically one sentence. She said, "Those unmasking requests had my name on them, but I didn't do them." So she's saying that they were done in her name, but she had nothing to do with it. So. You know, either she's lying or if she's telling the truth, that raises the question, well, then who was using her name to do these things? And isn't that kind of odd that that hundreds of requests, unmasking requests are being made in her name? And did she know about it? Did she not know about it? Um, you know, who was doing them and, wh and why? So this so that in itself is kind of a, you know, a, a little bit of a scandal still ongoing and uh, no one really knows mm. um, the ins and outs of it. And so that's being investigated. Then, uh, you know, what else is going on? There's, um, well, the whole, the whole, they're investigating this Fusion GPS uh, group, which is mm -hmm. basically an organization of, of creepy people who, uh, disreputable people who are paid to dig up dirt uh, and, or, or fab, more likely fabricate dirt on, um, on whoever they want, basically. So someone within the Democratic uh, Party, Hillary's gang, Cass Justine, the, the husband of uh, Samantha Powers, people around Obama and stuff like that, they were basically um, employing these people to basically f to fabricate uh, this dossier. So they go and they find this uh, retired or supposedly retired MI6 guy in the UK uh, who's got his own private intelligence operation going. Um, and they use him, Steve, what was his name, Stephen, or James uh, Steele? Uh, something. Chris Steele? Chris Steele. Christopher. Uh, get, get him to make stuff up uh, about uh, Trump and then present it and say, have the FBI say, well, we don't know if this is true or not, but here it is. Here you go, media, spread this all around the place so it may as well be, you know, so people would take it as true to smear Trump. And so they're going after these people now. Um, the Republicans are, are are going after these people now, or basically Trump's people, to the, to the extent that he has anybody left, are going after this, uh, this Fusion GPS group that hired this guy to produce a dodgy dossier to find out who's been funding them, basically, who's, who gave them the money for that dodgy dossier uh, and show it as, expose it for what it is, trying to expose it for what it is, which was just basically a, a smear campaign uh, by by the Democrats against against uh, Trump, by Hillary's people against Trump, which everybody knows at this point, anybody who has any sense knows that anyway, but I suppose they want the, the, the hard facts and they want to maybe try and get some kind of court case going, but... Uh, in the current climate, um, I'm not sure that would uh, that's going to get very far. But I suppose it's good enough to get it out in the media that you're that that's where it's going, you know. And Trump, of course, recently was talking about the real Russia scandal is not my or my links with Russia, but it's the uranium, the 20% of our uranium that was sold by Hillary to the Russians, blah 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 blah. 
So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. But just back on the rush thing, like, I mean, we're just getting back to... Um, it's really useful for the rest of the world, Russiagate, because it keeps them, you know, focused inwards and hopefully distracted enough to just carry on yeah. changing the world order as, you know, as right. they just but go, go at each other's throats, you know. Yeah. Well, it's helpful for for Russia too. I was reading an article about the the Russian media, and um, like the point was made that it used to be like the Soviet propaganda machine was just uh, you know terrible. They tried you know they did everything they could to to prevent um, like the American Western perspective from getting into the country. Um, whereas today, what Rush the like the Russian media approach is that they they are immediately on top of every like. Russiagate scandal that's uh, in the, the U.S. press and then they translate it and then mm-hmm. they, they just air it on Russian media mm-hmm. because it is so absurd that it just, that, that people right. look at it and they just can't help but will, right. will laugh and just and just see how, how idiotic the Americans are by just presenting right. their own words. And that's why, so, they hate, that's why they hate RT and Sputnik is because uh, what RT and Sputnik do is they report on, basically report on the, to some extent on, on, the, on the American media. And the American media basically has for a very long time spread, like CNN and stuff, has spread a load of nonsense and make, make stuff up and spread it as fact. I mean, everybody knows that going back even just to the Iraq war, but the media basically, uh, you know, um, disseminated lies from the government without any investigation whatsoever and, lie, th- you know, claims about Iraq and stuff that were obvious lies and they spread them as truth. Uh, so that's what the American media does. So it's very easy for the RT and Sputnik to to uh, just take those reports and, and then, you know, expose the fact that it's a lie. Just put in a few extra paragraphs and say, here's what uh, CNN said today, but here's why it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, they, and that's hard. Yeah. That's, that's like, it's like, it's like sunlight to vampires, you know? And basically, that, that's the problem. That's why they hate them so much. And of course, that's why there's been, just this week, as um, Red Fox in the, on the, in the chat was saying, that uh, both in America and in, uh, in the UK, for example, they are they're really going after RT, you know, and there's this looming threat in the background that Russia has actually responded to that if uh, if RT or Sputnik in particular, Sputnik was in the crosshairs you know, over the past couple of months about that they may be uh, basically basically banned as a uh, on the Foreign Agents Act, I think it's called, uh, where they would have to register as basically a, a propaganda propaganda outlet of a, of a different uh, of a different nation state of a foreign nation uh, and. What the the Russians have said, if, listen, if you go down that line with us, then we're going to take similar steps against uh, uh, Western media in in in, in Russia. Uh, but of course, that's uh, that might not be that would be a uh, it would be a bigger blow to Russia in a cer- to a certain extent. It would be a, it would be a propaganda coup for them. But because like you were saying in the chat room, they're um, uh, by attacking. Russian outlets in this way, they actually drive people towards them because if, if it's basically saying it's like the Western governments, British and the American governments, and the press are all saying, "Don't watch RT. Whatever happens, do not watch." I mean, it's like saying to kids, "Don't push that red button." Mm-hmm. Right? I'm going to leave you alone in this room for an hour, and don't push that red button. Um, first thing they do is push the red button. So don't watch RT. Oh, why? D- just don't watch it. Okay, don't ask me why. Just do not watch it. Watch it. It's it's evil Russian propaganda, and you are such a new average member of the public are so imbecilic and naive and simple-minded that you cannot discern truth from lightning. So, I mean, basically what I'm saying to you is that you're an idiot and you can't be trusted to read uh, your own information. 
And that's really going to go down well with the average citizen. Yeah, they're going to go, first of all, screw you, because you arrogant a-hole. And secondly, I'm going to go and watch it, because it sounds like you don't, there's something on there you don't want me to see. And these idiots don't realize that that's exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're pushing people towards uh, the, these outlets. And, I mean, if they were to ban them in the, in the UK and in, in, um, in the US... Well, yeah, Russia would ban CNN, but I'm pretty sure not many people watch CNN in Russia. Mm. Or, or when, if they do, they do it just for a laugh. Um, so banning CNN in Russia wouldn't be too too hard on, on CNN. They wouldn't lose much. But Russia, in theory, might lose a lot by being banned from, uh, by RT being banned or Sputnik being banned in, in the US or in the UK. But then with the internet, mm-hmm. uh, what are you going to do, block the websites as well? Mm, difficult, you know. But you're definitely driving people towards them by doing that. But that's that's like psycho nut job. That's when when the psycho nut job end end game here. You know what I mean? Where they really don't realize that what they're doing is just hurting themselves, and the, and, and and when they realize that the things they think that uh, the actions that that they're taking uh, that they think will you know stop the bad stuff happening to us, when they take those actions and they realize that it backfires. They go, oh, what what do we do now? And invariably the response is, well, do it again. Maybe we just didn't do it hard enough the first time. Do it again. You know, they double down on bad ideas that are patently, transparently bad ideas, and they have the evidence that it's a bad idea to do that. Or maybe they don't see the results of their of their actions, you know. They're living in la-la land, basically. They're in their own little reality, along with Carl Rove, well, they don't see any of this bad stuff happening. They just have this wonderful vision of how they're going to, you know, make the world safe for America again or something or make, you know, uh, uh, restore American hegemony. And, and they just block out everything that shows that they're not going to be able to do that. It's just simply not going to be able to do it. But I don't accept that. It's like John McCain talking to Dunford, you know. Wanted, I, wanted, I want some uh, no-fly zone in Syria. And Dunford says, well, Senator... Um, that would involve us going to war with Russia and Syria. Really? For a little old no-fly zone. All I ask you <laughs> is for a little no-fly... This is, we're America. And I ask you, General, for a no-fly zone in a foreign country halfway around the world. And you tell me that we're going to have to go to war with Russia. Ooh. Get out of here. Give me another general. <laughs> give me a general that's going to give me the right answer. This, this is the people you're talking about. Where, yeah. the, where did those people go? Where's it going to go for someone like that? I mean, that kind of type, that kind of personality or psychological type is portrayed in movies. And generally, they end up like exploding. Their head the head blows up or at the end of the movie, something really bad happens to that type of personality that, you know, they're charted throughout the movie of making those kind of decisions, falling further and further into the delusion to the point where they just are the architect of their own destruction. It's, it's a cliche almost. And it's so sad that these people in America can't even say they're a freaking cliche at this point. And increasingly, they're going to be the laughing stock of the world. And Which is why I'm no longer frustrated by it at all. I'm rather enjoying it. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, the lies said about Russia would just make me go, duh. I've realized now since Trump's election that even in the U.S., where the quality of information is atrocious. Yeah. People saw through the incessant stuff uh, in the build-up of the elections. Now, it wasn't so much about Russia then. There was a few months of it. They were, hint- they were hinting at it, that 
Trump was Putin's guy. Of course, they only went into overdrive after the fact. Which is it was such a, a genius idea, right? Let, let, let's tie the guy who should not have won with our worst enemy. Right. In the process, educating Americans, many of them, no offense here, about the existence of a country called Russia. Mm-hmm. Never mind the fact that something unusual is going on And that there. it's also very powerful. <laughs> that it has right. the power to subvert our democracy. And they think that's going to like... I mean, they don't realize, they don't understand people. people. If you say, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a bully or, uh, you know, in a schoolyard and a bigger bully comes along and beats you and you start trying to say to all the other kids that used to be afraid of you, that a bigger bully, he's better than me and he's scarier than me, you know, they're not going to think very much of you. They're going to think, oh, well, he's a, b- a bigger bully. I better be afraid of him and not you anymore. Uh, uh, it's just such simple, you know, psychological kind of uh, concepts that are apparently lost on these people. You know, don't... They, they become lost or denuded or something in the hubris of it all. The hubris over there is just incredible. Um, yeah. Sheer well, hubris. It just, I don't know. And then you have stuff like Vegas happening in the middle of all this, you know. I mean, is that maybe when people want an explanation for... Why, if they follow what 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 we think happened in Vegas, that it was obviously wasn't this paddock and his own. The um, even even Sheriff Joe Lombardo of Las Vegas said this guy had to have help, you know. And then he kind of back. We didn't say much more about that afterwards, but initially it was like obviously he had help. I mean, face value. You think this guy was he some kind of super Yahoo who did this on his own? He's like sixty five years old. He has twenty three guns in his room and he kills. He's this amazing kill rate, like a military pro, and he's like he's just a six five year old gambler with no history of gun gun interest. And what he did all this on his own? Is he some kind of superhero? Some kind of super Yahoo? Really? I mean, this is a guy who was on the scene and he has that response. But but apparently, oh no, I I think it was uh, it was what CNN said. Right, okay, well, just remove your brain and give it to science because you don't need it anymore. Obviously, you don't want your brain anymore. It's not serving you very well anyway. So, uh, But what's the answer? You know, what's the answer to that question of, of our thesis, which is that obviously uh, Paddock had, there was a team involved in, in carrying out this attack. Why did they do it? Well, it happened in the context of everything we've just been saying where America is really losing the plot on the global stage. And do people inside America, who like the kind of deep state kind of people, do they see that there's a benefit to carrying out this kind of a mass murder uh, against in, in this particular context in in, in, in Las Vegas against a, a concert, open air concert. Do they see some benefit in terms of the spread of the fear and trauma, whatever you want to call it, that happened as a result of that in terms of their control over the Americans, over the American mind? I mean, there's, you know, Edward Bernays, cousin or nep- nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud. He's, uh, he's seen as the, the father of kind of propaganda, basically. He's a guy who back in the 30s or 20s or 30s in the U.S., you know, spearheaded the kind of women's lib kind of thing where he had women smoking because women weren't allowed to smoke. And he, he basically launched a marketing campaign to get for the for the cigarette manufacturers to get women to smoke again. And they called them, I think they called them freedom, freedom pillars or freedom pillars or something like that. And he got all these women smoking, marching in the street and stuff. And he... Uh, but extent, his influence extended way beyond advertising and into politics and stuff as well. And he said... Um, uh, one of his one of his great successes was convincing the American people to to join the kind of slaughter in the First World War. But uh, he he's on record as saying that the secret in terms of convincing people uh, and talking about an entire population here 
He said the secret was engineering the consent of people in order to control and regiment them according to our will without their knowing about it. And he said that this was the true ruling power in our society. And he called it an invisible government in the 1930s. So um, back in the 1930s, you had this guy who was, you know, had the ears of politicians and all that kind of stuff. And he's talking about an invisible government and the, 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 the goal of it being um, to, to manufacture, engineer consent in such a way that people and, and regimenting people's will uh, in a way that they, they don't know, in such a way that they don't know that it's actually happening to them. Does that play into Las Vegas? Is Las Vegas that kind of attack, a uh, kind of engineering of a kind of consent or a, a shepherding or a manipulation or a redirecting of, of the public perception in America in a certain direction? This is just about spreading fear and trauma and people scared about going out in public. Is I mean, why would they want to even do that? Well, do these people just like their, their main goal? Number one is controlling the American population. I mean, it's, it's like the farmer and the sheep. This is our herd and we, we want to control it for some particular end. Or is it just that's an end in itself? But these people are way beyond money. It's now about human capital. Uh, and, and they get their jollies out of out of basically keeping the, spooking the herd and keeping them down. Is that, the, is that the level that these people are at, you know? I mean, Carl Rove, as we mentioned earlier, talked about that in a certain sense about, or he talked about engineering or, or about creating reality. Uh, in such a way that you, the public, you know, these people talk in these terms of like us up here and you, the masses of humanity, being just left to figure out what we do because we create reality. I mean, and this guy was like, he was like, you know, right up there in the, in the eight years of the Bush administration. He was uh, Bush's Bannon. Right. So, I mean, anybody says that, that, I mean, that right there is obviously, there's hard evidence that that is the kind of ideology of the way these people perceive the world as them at the top and everybody down below them in a country, 300 million people in America are there to be engineered and controlled and manipulated and directed in a certain way, in such a way that they do not understand that that's what's happening. And they get off on that, you know? I mean, that's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, it's like a horse's mouth. There was an interesting article a few days ago. I think it was in the, might have been the National Review. And the headline was something like, um, why the lack of a motive for Las Vegas is so disturbing. And the author of this article interviewed several like psychiatrists and psychologists. Right. And the gist of the article was that um, that this the, the reason like the lack of a motive is so disturbing is because it doesn't give any closure. It doesn't it doesn't right. like give a, a narrative structure to the event. It's left open ended. Right. And you, if you look at every other mass shooting, every other like you know terror event, there's always there's always a clear motive, and so the storyline is there. You know whether it's true or not, it's it fulfills its basically narrative its narrative purpose, and that's a psychological purpose too. It gives it gives people like a reason, and even a reason is is more um, um, I wouldn't say comforting. It's more it, it gives that it gives the sense of closure, um, whereas you know lack of a motive doesn't. Now the thing about this without a you know paddock without a motive, it's um, thing about it. Is that like unless they come up with a motive like in the next like number of weeks, like while the event is still fresh, then then um, you know I, I think I'll be forced to conclude that the motive for whoever really planned this thing was that there would be no motive, exactly for the purpose of leaving it open ended and not giving any closure, right? Because that's like it's it's a traumatic experience to, to go through so, like something like this on a mass level without mm. any narrative to go along with it. And in that same and article, basically, 
in that same article, the person mm-hmm. said that it, this happened in the context of an already already deeply divided society because of uh, Trump and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff over the past year. And um, we have to put it in that context as well. And uh, in the article, the guy says, um, in a con- he says, in a country riven by deep political and social divisions, the absence of an explanation for Paddock's actions leaves many wondering, who's on my side? And in the absence of effective mm-hmm. appeals to unity, he fears, the average person fears that, or sorry, this person fears that anxious Americans would probably retreat more deeply into their partisan echo chambers. Maybe. Well, the thing is, you know, people people ask why would they do this, but you have to remember that this this isn't something that, that has a clear cut um, motive. You know, you can't just say, oh, they, they this kind of team of people who carried the shooting in in you know deep state or some dark murky area of the CIA or whatever uh, black ops people to carry this out that they had a very specific clear cut uh, aim that they were trying to achieve, but rather that it's a part of a kind of a slow, ongoing process of, you know, manip- manipulating the American mind that has been going on for a long time. You can go back to, probably go back longer, but go back to, you know, 9-11 and what happened as a result of 9-11 and the militarization of American society and how different American society is today compared to before 9-11. People should stop now and again and take stock of just how different, how, 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 the, how the country in America has changed and the world has changed as a result of 9-11 and the world we live in now. And um, that it's all of that involved a serious manipulation of uh, people's thinking and their perspective and directing it in a certain certain direction. So maybe this uh, Las Vegas shooting is, is is just one another part of that ongoing process, you know. And to what end? I don't know. Uh, keeping people down, basically, and to keep them mm-hmm. bound to the beliefs that inform the United States right. as configured, manifest destiny, shining city on the hill, like, world's policemen. Right. You've got to at least keep your immediate herd bound to it, even if out there it looks like they're falling apart right. by the wayside. They need that support from the American people. They yes. need people to be thinking that way about America and about America's role in the world and stuff because that kind of ensures these people at the top, it, 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 it ensures it, it Ensures that, that they keep their jobs, their positions as as you know, major major brokers in the world type of thing, and yeah. the power that they perceive that they ha- they feel they have as a result of that that comes from American people, from the American people believing uh, in America as man- like you said, manifest destiny and you know, policeman of the world, and we're the greatest country in the world and stuff. That that enables these people at the top to go around the world doing what they've been doing for for a hundred years. If people stop believing in that and stopped. Uh, stop essentially, you know, indulging in this kind of arrogance uh, that that Americans tend to have in a certain sense about their about their country and their role in the world. Then they might it integrate well, with collapse. the rest of the world. No, that's the paranoia coming from the top. Oh, if if it's not this way, it's anarchy. No, right. what's actually the fear? Well, what would actually happen is that Americans would integrate naturally right. with the rest of the world but that on a be, more equitable basis. Right, but that for them that would be a collapse right. of their privileged. Uh, hegemonic, as they see it, positions in the world. Yes, collapse of their power. Right, of their, of their supreme power that they, mm. they strive for, which is sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, yeah, it actually, <laughs> there was a few, right. I was glad that there wasn't so many people <laughs> at the concert that I heard saying, uh, whenever the shooting was going on, there's one video, and it wasn't every, all 22,000 people, but 
when the shooting began and it was well underway and people knew what was happening, there was in one of the videos of the concert goers, you can hear a group, a sizable enough group of people in the background all shouting, USA, USA, USA. They were shouting USA, USA as they were being shot at by someone, as if by simply shouting USA, you would, that's as good as bullets almost, you know. Um, I would like to believe they were among the more drunk. Hopefully. Uh, there were a lot of decent things. A lot of people helped other people. A lot of people just fled, but you know, there was there were some good stories out of there too in the horror. Yeah, and it's sad, there, but um, but it's sad that you know that you see good people like that being brutalized in that way. You know, I mean that's the really horrific part of it. And uh, but uh, you have to learn all you can about it and. Not, I suppose, not Amer- get caught up in it yourself. Americans need to come to realize that they're being quite literally stalked by a beast that will shoot them in the kind of warlike simulation. Not so much to cull the herd in any kind of literal sense, but to to brutalize them and shock them over and over. 9-11, um, Boston bombing, Sandy Hook, Las Vegas, um because that that's that's their nature, you know. I mean, yeah, they are psychopathic. Hey, Joe Lombardo, on the night, uh, one of the first questions from a reporter: Have you any idea about the possible motive here? And his his answer to that was: Well, look, I, I can't get into the mind of a psychopath. Hmm. Now, that's exactly what he was on the money. But he, talk- he wasn't so much deflecting the question; he was simply stating the obvious fact that whoever did this is not of a normal human mindset. Mm-hmm. And once you know there's a conspiracy, which is staring you in the face because the media is all lying, the same media you know that lie to you about everything else, about Trump every day, about Russia, then you've got your answer. It's obviously a power group with people with influence who come up with this thing, who set it up, who have some of their minions or whatever carry it out, people who would be of like mind, of course, they're not regular military folk, and then cover it up. And they've been into this kind of thing since forever. This is on a macro social scale what they've been were doing to people um, in hospital beds in the 60s when they were electrocuting the hell out of them, plying them with LSD and the CIA experiments in, in an attempt. They, they actually believed they were trying to do this to wipe a person's entire persona and then you would have like a clean operating system and then you could just play messages over and over and over on the tape and it would reprogram them with new memories. That's, that mentality is what you're dealing with here. Mm. Except now that they do it up to the whole population through these kinds of things. Right. Pure materialistic uh, interpretation of, of reality. Of reality and life or, and people. Or as, human beings are just, yeah, yeah. Human beings are just cattle, machines, whatever. And to be done with as as they see fit. So, yeah, pretty sad people. Mm. Anyway, I think we will leave it there, folks. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, All right. so thanks everyone for tuning in. Yes, thanks for listening. <laughs> and, uh, show. We'll see you next week. Alrighty. See you next week. Alrighty. Same time. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.